You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Feldspar Ventures, an incubator studio that transforms early stage media properties into multimedia entertainment franchises. Their team is passionate about transforming a creator's vision into reality and commercial success. To learn more, visit FeldsparVentures.com. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today I'm thrilled to have one of my dearest friends and role models on the show, Eric Brownstein. I've said this before, I'll say it again because it truly is the best way to describe him. Eric is what I want to be when I grow up. Eric is the president and chief strategy officer of Shareability, an explosive content factory that makes incredible, compelling digital productions. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, James. So good to be here. You started your career as an environmental advocate. How did you find your way into the online video space? Oh, boy. (laughs) A long and winding road. Yeah, I started out doing environment and human rights work. Got written up in a magazine called Institutional Investor, of all things. They were highlighting me and a couple other activists, basically telling financiers to watch out that we were coming for them. The CEO and chairman of a publicly traded bank based out of Philadelphia called my uncle and said, are you related to this guy? I'd like to talk to him. We connected. The guy was a big philanthropist. We, we hit it off. He said, how'd you like to run cause-based projects, explore what this internet thing is, be my eyes and ears, work from home in California, go to any conference, do whatever you want, and I'll pay you full time. Kind of a dream setup. I had left the nonprofit that I was working for. So I basically set off on a path of figuring out what this thing called Web 2.0 meant and what online advertising and media and content meant. And that was the beginnings of, of the whole thing. Part of it, too, coming down to L.A. was the understanding that stories and content were what actually shaped culture and would have the biggest impact on the world. And so the idea of being a part of that and aligning it with things that mattered ended uh, sort of is how I ended up here. So you were originally from the East Coast. And what prompted you to move to L.A.? There was no prompt to move to L.A. I was living in San Francisco working for Rainforest Action Network and came down here to house sit for two weeks with my dog and never left. But going back to what I said about this understanding of L.A. being the kind of cultural epicenter of the world, for better or for worse... Um, that was one of the reasons that I decided to stay as well, that and the weather. There we go. Hard to turn that down. So you then immersed yourself in digital media, Web 2.0, as you said. You just were self-taught. I mean, how did you discover this whole world? Well, I didn't come down here to get involved in digital media. I came down here to dog sit. I ended up getting involved in digital media through this relationship with the, the bank, They said, go explore, figure this out. They didn't understand it. Nobody really understood it. So that was my education. You know, I started out writing scripts, as most people do when they come to L.A., who have some kind of vision of being involved in storytelling. But that was really an excuse, I think, to go to a lot of movies and hang out and not actually have to work. So I did that for about a year and a half, wrote a few scripts with my friend, and then got involved with this emerging media landscape. So you've had a variety of roles and kind of amassed all this knowledge over the years. But I guess one of the things I'd like to focus on is the new agency. You launched the new agency in 2004 to help brands and agencies understand digital, think big and get noticed. So what inspired you to start that business? 
Well, the new agency was kind of the, the shingle I put up on the door, essentially, as I started working with the bank. I was a full-time consultant to the bank, so, you know, set up a company and, and you know, ran the business through that. When the financial crisis hit, um, you know, I'd been doing other things along the way. I got involved with the Vegas poker show. I got involved with a handful of random things. When the financial crisis hit, you know, I stayed on with the bank till literally the day they declared bankruptcy. They had gone from 3,000 employees to 200. And then I got the call saying, okay, the, you know, the gravy train ride is up. So I had, you know, a sort of moniker to work under, which was the new agency. Conversations with friends, uh, for example, the CEO of Stila Cosmetics, who in 2007 or 8 said, I don't understand why this Twitter thing matters. Why should I care that someone's having a sandwich somewhere? Um, that led to helping them build out a social media infrastructure, building out content plans that led to other clients that were related you know, to steal a friends of friends and referrals. So the new agency got started sort of, you know, out of the relationship with the bank, essentially. So what would you say is the hardest part of being an entrepreneur? The hardest part for sure is understanding and then putting into action the difference between being a passionate, visionary, intellectual, creative, whatever you want to call it, you know, with being a business person, like they're completely different skill sets. And, you know, there's the E-Myth, which is a great old book that everyone should read who has any aspiration to be entrepreneurial, which is you can love making pies and you can be the greatest damn pie maker in town, but actually running a pie store is very different than making pies. So the biggest challenge without a doubt is scaling and building a business versus having a lifestyle kind of consulting type business. So the new agency was doing great chugging along being a consulting business essentially, which was me at the center and then working with a lot of different people, but actually scaling anything requires a whole different skill set. And so that's kind of what I'd been doing for years and then what led me to the shift that I made about six months ago. So let's talk about that. So you went from being an independent operator, very much consulting, uh, relationship-driven, to actually joining a, a company full-time and being integrally involved in scaling that business. And that's shareability. So tell us a little bit about shareability and how you got involved with the team. Yeah, so the new agency's model essentially was marketing tech, marketing services, kind of content creators on one side and connect them with brands and the agencies uh, on the other. So I'd sort of sit in the middle sprinkle some strategy fairy dust on top, be as involved as the brands or agencies needed me to be. But really, I was a connector. So I'd be solving problems for brands and agencies by saying, you should work with these guys, you should work with this, this solution, and so on. Shareability, when I met them, had literally just started. They were called Contagious at the time. It was a collection of a handful of guys out of Utah and really two or three people here in L.A., and they were creating great content. They had a bit of an organic kind of distribution engine built behind the content to give it a boost. But they were, you know, one of my partners, right? One of the solutions that I would try to bring to agencies or press. As I got to know them, I realized, A, I like these guys a lot. B, there was a lot I could learn from them, which is, you know, an inspiring and not particularly common thing these days. And three, you know, there was 
clearly traction that was happening when I'd bring them into brands, everyone would go, wow, that's cool. Like, I'd like to know more about them. So the relationship started, they were one of my partners that went on for a good solid year and a half or so. Uh, shareability then started, you know, getting involved in conversations with the Chernin group about taking funding. And it was about that time where we started talking about joining forces, where I could bring more of the strategy and the distribution and some of the other nuts and bolts of anything beyond kind of creative and production and some of the organic. And so we realized, you know, it was going to be a two plus two equals kind of five opportunity. And it was a big leap for me. You know, I haven't been willing to take that leap for a long time. So, you know, the new agency and shareability joined up officially the beginning of the year. And things have gotten very hectic in a good way since then. It seems like a pretty incredible recipe for a great team, right? You've got Tim Staples, uh, one of the co-founders, the CEO, who comes from an agency background, right? Has built and sold successful agencies before. You've got Nick Reed, who's this Hollywood agent has terrific relationships in the film and entertainment space and with a number of brands. And then you kind of come in to be the third leg of the tripod, which is the strategy, the digital media experience and the brand relationships. Yeah. And I'll add one more. There's, there's three good legs to the stool. There's Tim who has the background in, in brand work and, and big activations and celebrity. You've got Nick who, as you mentioned, kind of Hollywood background. He also won an Academy Award two years ago. Um, but aligned with Nick, we've got Joel, Joel Bergvall, who is actually Academy nominated director, you know, best foreign film. So he kind of makes up with Nick that second leg of world class storytelling. And then the third leg was me coming in as kind of the strategy, the distribution and so on. We also have the kind of Utah crew, and that's our sort of finger on the pulse of what's happening through the digital subculture with, you know, YouTube and YouTubers and creators, you know, most people don't realize that Provo is one of the three hubs of YouTube, you know, London, LA and Provo, Utah. And why is that? You could say that the Mormon community doesn't party as much as most places and they got more time to make cool videos and do creative stuff. Um, There's also probably elements of the fact that Brigham Young has a huge, amazing advertising program. And a lot of the big channels, the YouTube channels, like a Devin Supertramp grew out of Utah because it's an amazing place, you know, physically. And a lot of that work was, you know, in big natural environments. And a lot of your Utah team, from what I understand, has actually done some work with Devin Supertramp. Yeah, well, they were kind of the guys behind the guys. So one of the original partners helped create some of those channels with the talent. So it was a kind of real understanding of what works behind the scenes, you know, what kind of content works what kind of distribution tactics work, you know, what does the internet want? So when you meet someone outside of our industry, outside of the online video space, how do you explain what shareability does? I say that we're most known for making, and I use quote marks, you know, viral videos for big brands. And that's just kind of, you know, it's the word viral is not the word that I always want to be using, but if someone's unfamiliar with the industry and all the lingo and you say branded content, they have no idea what you're talking about, honestly. So viral videos make sense. And then if there's an appetite to have a deeper conversation, we get into it. But it's, you know, we make cool content. We make cool videos for big brands. The kind of stuff that 
you see people sharing on Facebook. And give us some examples because your success rate is astronomical, right? I mean, it's over 50% in terms of hits of, of organic discovery and, and real popular success on YouTube and other platforms. Pretty much every piece of content we've ever made has gotten a viral organic boost, right? On top of whatever paid means or whatever other means we use to get it out there. That doesn't mean every video we've done is a grand slam or a home run. Like we've had singles, we've had doubles, we've had triples, but literally every piece of content we put out has gotten an organic lift. And so we'll often say, you know, what we're doing is a guaranteed minimum with unlimited upside, right? You give something enough boost to give it its minimum so no one's going to get fired and they can go to their boss and say, look, here's what we got. But then there's this opportunity for blowing something out of the water and getting promoted. And so that's what we've actually seen with some of our biggest clients, right? So the woman we worked with at Pizza Hut, she got Forbes 30 under 30 for marketing, referencing the videos we did with her. Our goal is to sort of take our client champions and promote them. So we don't even go for awards, like we're not going after Ken Lions or anything. We're actually out pitching the guy or the woman at the brand that we work with. Like that's what our PR agency is doing, getting speaking gigs for them, getting them in front of journalists and so on. So yeah, we've had a crazy run of success. I mean, some of the highlights, we had the most shared global ad, uh, celebrity ad of the year last year with Cristiano Ronaldo. We've done his three most successful videos he's ever launched on his channels. That includes everything from Nike and all his other big endorsements. Just last month, we had the number one uh, ad for Ad Age, number one on YouTube's charts, uh, the cricket John Cena prank video. Once again, the most successful video John Cena's ever done. So we take big influencers and celebrities and we elevate their game to a whole nother level. The Pizza Hut work we did with Pepsi last year was the number one most shared ad in the world for the month. We had a video that we did with a smaller company called Fresh Pet, which probably through all the ways it was ripped and stolen and which was great for us, probably hit about 80 million views or so. Um, we were involved with the ad of the decade, which was Turkish Airlines, Kobe and Messi. We've had our hands in a lot of big, successful videos. And, you know, there's art and science to that. And that's a whole conversation, which we'll probably get into a bit is, you know, what is the process for actually, you know, catching lightning in a bottle over and over again? Let's talk about that. How do you create a model for repeatable success? What are the ingredients and what is the process, the creative process that you go through? Well, it's all a great secret and I can't talk about it. <laughs> um, no, we always say there's about a, a hundred things that you need to get right for a video to be appealing enough and compelling enough so that someone will actually share it, right? So we think there's a big difference between a good piece of content and a great piece of content and a shareable piece of content. So, you know, we all know that, you know, there's some people that you're friends with that'll share a bunch of stuff. There's some people that won't share anything. And then there's people that every once in a while will post something. Getting someone to post something that a brand has done is a pretty huge hurdle to get over. And that's everything we do is that's the bar. So the process of creating something that is shareable, you know, looking at it from 20,000 feet, there's, there's a process that involves kind of four main elements. Um, one is the research, figuring out what we're going to create what's happening online, what's related to the brand, what we're going to feed into the creative process. The second is the creative process. 
The third is the production process. And then the fourth is the distribution process. So those four elements are the key pieces of building what we call a machine um, or even, you know, in the lingo of technology, a stack, right? What does the shareability stack look like? And it has elements of process and methodology as well as tech. So, you know, without getting too far in the weeds, there's, you know, within the creative side, there's sourcing ideas and finding trends that have been untapped. There is then, you know, all of that sort of research that feeds into the creative, which is a brain trust model that is built from what Pixar did, which is to have, you know, essentially a bunch of different perspectives lending their input. And that essentially goes through many stages of sourcing ideas and then um, vetting ideas, rating ideas, and refining ideas. So everyone has a voice. It's almost a, a fairly democratic process. It's a very democratic process, actually. And it's the opposite of kind of a agency pyramid model where you've got the, the genius on top. So, yeah, it's, it's very democratic. We actually have a voting process where the ideas have to get over a certain score to be deemed shareable, right? So there's definitely not shareable, could maybe someday be shareable, you know, has a chance to be shareable, you know, goes all the way through to this is a unicorn, we need to make this video tomorrow. So that whole process is, is one element of the creative. Then, you know, it's, it's actually getting to, let's say, a script, if we're doing a scripted piece, um, all the pieces that go into that. Then we head into production. And then there's more testing around different versions of, you know, cuts. Then we're finally getting even into testing around thumbnails and descriptions and all of that. And then we get into what's the ignition going to look like, right? How are we going to give this thing the right boost to cut through the clutter? Because a big thing that differentiates us from what others are doing is we're launching on the brand's channels. So we don't have the luxury, let's say, like a BuzzFeed to just stick something on the front page and know that it's going to get a million eyeballs right off the bat. We're launching on Cricket's YouTube channel or Cricket's Facebook page. And, you know, they may have 20,000 YouTube subscribers. So giving something the right boost to give it the momentum is a huge part of it as well. And knowing how to do that the right way through a mix of paid and a mix of organic and PR and so on. So, like I said, about 100 plus different pieces of the puzzle, but it's a, a process that we're refining and we're actually getting more and more sophisticated, bringing some really cutting edge academics into the early stage of the research. So that's something else we can talk about is what we're doing on the research side with brands and helping them plan out a year long calendar for content and a roadmap and all the thematics that fit under that. There's a lot that goes into making this work. One of the things I think that's most impressed me about the approach is that it's very different from a traditional agency model in which the brand drives the creative, right? In your case, you actually go to a brand and you say, you know, we respectfully want you to trust us, right? That we are experts in creating shareable content. And so you will have approval right over the final content, but you're not going to necessarily be involved in the creative process. That's the reason you're coming to us in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple things, you know, we'll often describe ourselves as sitting in between creative agencies on one side who really understand brands and 
social publishers like a BuzzFeed on the other end of the spectrum that really understand social. So we, we think we're in a unique position where we understand both. And having that conversation with a brand about what is aligned with what they're trying to achieve and what is aligned with what the internet wants is not an easy conversation. And because we're not an agency of record for anyone and we don't exist in that model, we feel like we can actually push back harder and um, have difficult conversations literally to the point where it's like, okay, if you decide to go down that road, you know, and we'll actually even say this jokingly, but like, can you sign something that says this won't be shareable? Right. So, you know, I've got a note back from a big fortune 500 client after we finally launched the video with a note. It literally had one word in it, which was hashtag you were right. And so that pushback is really delicate um, because oftentimes what happens is the champion that we're talking to, they may get it when their, their CMO or their boss sees the first cut and says, hey, we need 10 seconds more product in that video. And then they come to us and say, hey, we need 10 seconds more product in that video. And we say, hey, no, you don't. And here's why that becomes an interesting dynamic. And so one of the things we're, we're working on is, is being able to lean more on quantitative analysis than our opinion, right? So there's a trust us versus don't trust us, trust the testing that we've done. That makes it an easier conversation, you know, you can imagine. Have you lost any clients or, or have you had to walk away from clients who want to be maybe too domineering in the creative process? Um, we had one very big client that we kind of mutually agreed we should step away, you know, from the relationship. The, the reason was their agency, their creative agency was heavily involved and basically kept uh, putting the kibosh on all the ideas that not only we liked, but that our internal champion liked. So there was always some reason why it wasn't going to work. And after, you know, multiple efforts and, you know, attempts we just kind of, you know, said, look, this isn't flowing. You think we've got good ideas. We think these ideas are good and we just can't seem to get them through your agency. You know, whether that's because they're threatened or because they just don't get it or they've got the ear of the superior or whatever, that's that. So you've talked about a lot of the arts that's involved in the creative process and building out this engine and going through the production to the distribution model. Let's talk about the science. Let's talk about the research and the academic work that you're doing and you know the quantitative analysis you are bringing to making sure videos are shareable. So on the research side, there's a sort of academic field called quantum storytelling. It's been around for a while. One of my very good buddies has been involved with it and helping figure out how to bring it to market, essentially. The way that I best understand it, and I'm by no means an expert, but I've kind of drank the Kool-Aid, is that most people have been approaching uh, research and storytelling by looking at big data and pulling stories out of the big data, right? Let's take this vast pool of, of quantitative research and figure out which stories are resonating and what we can kind of build from that. The quantum storytelling model turns that on its head and says, you can pull anything out of big data. You can make sense of anything. So let's look at stories and pull data from the stories. And so it's a, it's a complete 180 flip. And 
there's quantitative and qualitative data that gets pulled out of stories. And those stories can be the stories that the brand is telling its customers. It can be the stories that the customers are telling other customers about the brand. It can be stories that competitive brands are telling their customers. It can be stories that exist within the relevant industry. So it can be stories the brand is telling investors and employees, right? There's this story field, essentially, when you use the quantum language that you can start pulling data from, right? And you start building this pool of research and analysis based on the stories themselves. From that analysis, you create what's called a story roadmap. And the story roadmap, which is essentially a strategy, guides all of the stories that you're going to tell, let's say, over the next year. And the story roadmap is essentially made up of, of archetypes and themes, right? Like any story. So based on all the analysis, we build a roadmap that is founded on these archetypes and these thematics and where they all overlap. And then essentially from there, that feeds into our creative process to create uh, creative territories. And then within those creative territories, then we start building specific concepts and activation ideas. And those can be within, let's say, a territory of prank videos that are heartwarming and relate to parenthood. And now we've got these, this, these different archetypes, these different thematics, these different territories, and that gives us a framework for a year's worth of social content. And it ties to the brand. It ties to the things the brand has done historically. So, you know, we just completed this research for fifth largest telecom company in the world based out of Europe. And this document was pretty freaking awesome. I mean, it's a 110-page document that not only, you know, provides this creative roadmap, but it also then integrated into all their distribution plans. Like, how does this content line up with their paid media, their earned, their owned channels, literally down to budget allocations for each of the videos that's going to be launched? And the social cutdowns that's going to be, you know, created from these big hero videos. So pretty sophisticated research and strategy. That's actually something that we're really interested in focusing on over the next year. You know, it's one thing to make big, fun hero videos. It's another thing to help a brand map out a entire social content strategy. So we covered a lot of ground there. Yeah. I want to break that into some pieces and make sure we can unravel some of those threads. The first is kind of talking about the difference between big data informed content and a quantum storytelling model. And I'm new to this, but it sounds profoundly interesting. So from what I gather, it sounds like the big data model is something like what BuzzFeed does, right? They look at what is trending right now. How do we make a video about Kanye versus Taylor Swift's, you know, make it funny, make it shareable. Whereas the quantum storytelling model is going to a brand and saying, let's look at what audiences are already saying about your brand. What are the conversations they're having? To use maybe an older example, Cadillac several years ago probably thought of themselves as a, a car brand for rich old white guys. And then there was all of this subculture around hip hop referring to Cadillacs. And then they you know, were able to change their brand positioning, their brand messaging to reach a different and a kind of a wider audience. So how would you use quantum storytelling to identify the trends or the themes that audiences are already sharing around a brand and then use that to drive creative? Yeah, so that's, that's the 10-week process that we go through, right? So the, the deep dive, as we call it, is essentially a deep dive into all of the narratives that are happening within and around that brand. And there's 
quantitative and qualitative aspects of that research that that essentially create a new data pool that then informs the roadmap and the strategy creation. So looking at auto, for example, we'd be looking at everything that Cadillac was doing, everything that was being talked about around Cadillac, everything that was being talked about, you know, in the related industries, on and on and on, but from a sto- through a storytelling lens, right? Not just, you know, through a data lens, essentially. So not an easy kind of overall kind of framework to boil down to kind of the, the basics, but seeing it come to life through the research is, is pretty awesome. So what are some of the key inputs that you look for? Are you building technology around this? Is this, you know, more of a consulting strategic relationship with brands? Yeah, so, you know, we look at this as kind of a relationship with a brand that, that goes beyond just creating content, right? It's a level of intelligence that, you know, starts with a deep dive and then continues on over time, right? So how do we, you know, take that first step together to really figure out what's going on and then build the strategy? And then inform, you know, the C-level as well as the folks working under them with information and intelligence that can guide, you know, not only the big hero content, but the more always on content that is going to be continuing throughout the year. So what kind of insights are useful there, right? Well, what kind of content is resonating with your audience um, as we move forward? What kind of content is resonating with your competitor's audience? What are they doing that you should be considering? What are the trends that are happening within the industry, within the culture that is related to your industry? You know, how do we look at all of that and pull insights out of that to inform the creative? One of the things that strikes me about this is that this would never have been possible in traditional media, right? That this is something driven by digital and that you're able to do in real time, right? And iterate and create content and then get feedback from YouTube, Facebook, and other online video platforms to then continue to drive further future videos and more conversation around a brand? Well, it used to be done in the old days with things that were very qualitative, right? Focus groups. Well, like you had these, you know, these consultancies, you know, I remember like Trend Hunter, you know, and it was like the, they were the big thing then. I don't remember when it was, but it was like 2008, 2007, you know, when I was working with with the, the bank back then, I remember bringing those guys in to meet the CEO and these others you know, these guys have their finger on the pulse, right? They know what's cool and what's trending and what's about to pop and so on. So you don't hear as much about those guys anymore because you have all this technology that is kind of doing this at a scale and with a quantitative kind of, uh, or through a quantitative lens that wasn't available. And democratizing the access to that, right? It was before it was uh, maybe a, an isolation of information where people held that close and were, was share it for a fee, but now anyone can exactly. And they would have some cool models, you know, like they would have these, you know, influencers. I don't, I can't remember. I think they were called trends or whatever they called them back in the day. They were called influencers, but they would have them in different cities and they would feed information into the kind of mothership of saying, Hey, this is what's cool in Tokyo right now. And this is what's cool in Milan. And, and they would feed that into the beast who would then package it up and then sell it to brands. Right. Now you just need to look at what are the influencers in Milan talking about? What are the influencers in Moscow talking about? Anywhere, right? And you can aggregate that data and use tools to pull better and bigger insights from them than any person could do. So what does the future hold for shareability? 
Well, the future is now. <laughs> you know, I say we, we're most known for viral videos and creating big shareable content for brands, but we've had and continue to put our fingers into a lot of different things. So, you know, we have a partnership with Cristiano Ronaldo, for example, where um, we're essentially, we've got a, a audio tech company that's kind of like a Beats by Dre for the rest of the world. So we have the biggest global influencer in the world who's partner with us and he's got these super high-end headphones and, you know, the three videos we did to launch that brand into 52 countries and thousands of retailers is something that we're super excited about. So this is building a global brand based on social content and video. There's been no other advertising, no trade shows, none of what you typically do to launch and grow a brand. So that's very exciting. We're involved with original content and intellectual property. Um, we've got several uh, shows in the work, sort of influencer-driven, digital-first TV shows. Where will you distribute those? Depends is the answer. You know, they are kind of traditional format um, in, in the way we're thinking about them in terms of, you know, longer form. But there's 15 different platforms that we think would be relevant. Netflix, Hulu, Go90. Exactly. So we've got uh, projects like that we're working on. We've got some really cool stuff we're doing with Snapchat um, and some big influencers. Um, scripted content with Snapchat. We've got a brand that we're incubating that's all focused on music. Um, and sort of a real world physical location. So a very cool underground music scene in Venice. Um, and, you know, with some of the biggest musicians in the world that stop by and do shows unannounced. So we're doing a music documentary and music series and things like that. And then there's, <laughs> there's probably three other <laughs> projects that are kind of, you know, in the works in varying degrees. But it's, you know, it's cool. People look at the stuff we've done with Ronaldo and their big celebrities and they say, well, geez, you know, we'd like to do something like that. You know, we've got some pretty heavy hitter advisors who have a background in traditional TV and movies that, you know, are looking to align with us because what we're doing is out in front. So they're bringing things that we might not have been thinking of into the fold. Things like e-gaming or you know, other sort of big territories that are taken off. So yeah, there's a lot uh, happening. I think the overall kind of guiding philosophy that ties it together is, you know, giving people value through content that they will share with their audience, as opposed to, you know, thinking that the old model of a bigger, better bullhorn is going to work. So whether it's long-form video or whether it's a brand that we're launching or whether it's a brand that we're helping promote, you know, that's what's kind of tying it all together. So let's switch gears a little bit and we'll uh, wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Okay. The first thing I want to ask is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Things will get better. And what does that mean? It just means no matter what you're doing, whether you're thinking it's, it's in a good spot or in a bad spot or a challenging spot, it's, it's always going to get better if, if that's your intention. Yeah. Those are good words probably for any entrepreneur to hear. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the book, uh, The E-Myth earlier, but I'm curious, are there any other great books you'd like to recommend? There's always a kind of go-to book, and I haven't even looked at it in years, but it's one that always sticks with me called What Would Google Do by Jeff Jarvis. And to me, that was a 
book that forces you to look at the world differently and look at the world through a lens that Google was looking at it through when they got going, which was through the perspective of, of what does a platform look like? You know, how do you bring value to different groups? Uh, so, you know, for Google, it was advertisers and people searching. So that book was always one that was just kind of a, a really good driver. And then I think, you know, for people who haven't been exposed to Seth Godin, you kind of have to try read some, some Seth Godin at the end of the day. I think Lynchpin is a great one, too, for people that work with companies, people who are entrepreneurial-minded, whether they're starting their own company or not. Those are the ones that kind of pop into mind. Great suggestions. Yeah. How are you thinking about shareability as a platform business? Yeah, I, I think about it a lot, actually. And it's it's something that kind of goes back to what I was describing as the shareability stack. You know, what are the different elements that go into a valuable piece of, of IP that can't be replicated? But at the end of the day, we're connecting brands and audience. And so the more that that can be scaled, the better. Honestly, you haven't figured out what that means, right? Because we're not a traditional platform. But if I think through that lens of connecting brands and their audiences, and there's a replicable, scalable machine that does that, that's kind of trying to get me into the, the platform mentality. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what would they be? Well, it's getting bigger. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, I think more and more people are going to focus on how it's specific to mobile. And I think that more and more people are going to think about how does it relate to uh, direct response. Those are three things that I think are going to be happening more and more. And I think other formats of, of original content, I think are going to start to take more shape, like, you know, whether it's a Snapchat um, formats, you know, but what are kind of mobile first formats with video that are going to make sense for people and that can get a bigger audience? I feel like people are kind of all over the place with that. and No one's really kind of nailed it. And what does that solution look like? How do you consolidate or bring audience together? Uh, it's, a, it's another good question that I don't have figured out and I don't know if anybody does. The one thing that pops into mind is, is like brands as publishers. and You've got, you know, big companies like Pepsi that have created the Pepsi studio, the Pepsi content studio, and they've got big money to put towards content. You know, how are they going to do that in a way that is not heavy handed, that is not, you know, hey, it's Pepsi, it's, but rather, hey, it's really cool content that's brought to you by Pepsi and it feels natural. Like, how are they going to help pull audience together aligned with content creators? So not a great answer to your question, but essentially, you know, I think that's another element that's going to come into the mix when it's how do you build audiences? How does the brand step in there? I'm fascinated by that trend as well of brands becoming publishers because Red Bull, obviously GoPro, Marriott, several have made that leap and, and are producing great content successfully. Others seem very aspirational that they want to do that, but struggle to. Does every brand need to be a content creator? Well, I would never say every brand needs to do anything, but certainly it's a trend that every brand should be, you know, understanding and exploring. Any any brand that's speaking to anyone needs to be looking through the lens of content, right? So if you're putting out commercials or you're putting out display ads or you're putting out newsletters or whatever the hell it is, 
it's content. And you got to understand whatever that content is, it can be better. So what does that mean, right? Well, typically content gets better when it's less salesy and when it's less one directional and when it's more interesting and when it's more entertaining and more engaging, right? So if that's the vision and you understand things can always get better, well, do you have to call yourself a publisher to get there? I don't know, but you certainly need to be thinking through that lens because that's essentially what publishing content is all about. So a brand like Pepsi that has invested a lot of money now into creating this Pepsi content studio, I think any brand that has customers is going to need to look at that and whether they do it themselves or whether they partner with a company like Shareability to do it, it's something that that you can't ignore. It comes back to the theme, again, of the differences between traditional and digital. And traditional was enough to make TV commercials and have them produced by an agency and pushed out. And digital, you have not just a push mechanism, but truly pull from the content insights that you're getting from the data, as well as a dialogue, right? A, a true interaction between uh, the viewers and the brand, the content creator themselves. So what's going to take that to the next level? I mean, you touched on mobile, you touched on DR, and I think we have some sleeping giants like Amazon that have a great you know, DR mechanism through their platform. And how are they going to get into video in a way that is meaningful, whether that's through technology, like shoppable video platforms, or through content that they're creating? Yeah, I mean, the tech side of it, like shoppable videos, is always going to be cool. And it's at the same time, it's technology, right? So if you put technology on something crappy, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It doesn't get you any further at the end of the day maybe a little bit further, but it's not a move the needle kind of thing. You know, the two-way conversation versus the one-way conversation is something that I've been talking about and people have been talking about since Web 2.0 came along. You know, that was the beginning really of this conversation around what does social media mean? You know, one of the core aspects of it was, well, it involves listening and responding as opposed to a TV commercial, which is just one way. So I think there's going to be no shortage of brands that continue to look through the lens of, no, this is about us getting our message out there. Digital is just another channel to do that. And, you know, maybe we'll get better at making cooler content to do that. You know, so you've got like a Geico of the world, which can make funny stuff and has certainly rebranded themselves as a cooler company. There's not necessarily a lot of listening going on there. It's not a multi-directional kind of conversation, but it has certainly elevated the brand. So I think there's different pieces of it. The, the, the shareable, valuable content is part of a movement towards a brand that gets it, that there's a conversation that needs to happen. They're a little bit different. You know, great content is part of that mix. A conversation, listening tools, engaging in conversations is another part of that mix. I think overall, it's just a shift in perspective towards changing the relationship. And, you know, I've been kind of joking about this recently that we're in the therapy business where the relationship between brands and their audiences and customers is fundamentally screwed up and it's not healthy. And so I can imagine you've got a brand and the audience sitting on a couch and the audience is like, I just feel so unheard. And the brand's like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to give you something better. And yet there's this fundamental disconnect. So, you know, our goal is to kind of make that relationship better. So we talk about building and deepening relationships with customers as why what we're doing is so important. 
right? At the Opening end of the up day, communication channels between the two. Yeah, and what's the goal of that, right? Opening the channels is is kind of the strategy, but the goal is a better relationship, right? So you imagine, you know, the the kind of aspiration of what that book called Love Marks. There's another cool book. It's a play off of what trademarks. So there's certain brands that have established love between themselves and customers, like a Patagonia, for example. There are people that love Patagonia. And if Patagonia asks them to do something, they're going to do it, right? How do you get to that level? How do you take a net promoter score that's in the 20s or the 30s to the 70s or the 80s, right? That's the goal here. So the big picture goal is a better relationship. We think content actually is a big part of that. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? That is a heck of a good question. I would probably figure out where I had some relationships and figure out how I could best leverage those relationships to provide some value. Um, And then how my skill set would kind of play along with that. I mean, at the end of the day, the the network is, is a huge currency. And so the people you know, as it always goes back to, are the ones that are going to help you get somewhere. I think starting something from scratch without an awareness of where you've already got relationships and ends is a mistake. So I'd be thinking about you know the people that I know or the people that I have ends to or all of that, then align that with what I already know, what I'm passionate about, um, and try and figure out where there's kind of a crossover there. Play to your strengths. Yeah, exactly. I like and it. Play to, you know... The connections. Yeah. How can you be helpful, right? How can you serve the people in your network? Exactly. Where can people find out more about you and more about shareability? Well, shareability, we've got, you know, our relatively uninspiring website. We're definitely a bit of the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Um, We've been so freaking busy that we're like, all right, let's just get the videos we've done up on our website. So there's, there's not a ton of information there. LinkedIn, obviously, is where there's good information about the stuff that I'm working on at least what I've been working on. So it's Eric Brownstein with a CK. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, shareability has popped up in the news quite a bit over the last six months. So, you know, whether it's Huffington Post or Ad Week or Ad Age, you know, there's some cool articles out there about kind of our messing around and the videos we've been doing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Getting the chance to speak with you about your work in such a, a deep way is awesome for me, right? Getting to learn about everything that's going on and sharing the evolution of your career and what you see as the exciting trends that a company like Shareability can take advantage of is super awesome. So I learned a lot. Hope it was valuable to the people listening as well. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you. And adios podcast world. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.